Never take a no from someone who can't say yes. Ian Koniak shared that in the episode that you're about to listen to. And dude, it just kind of blew me away. It's a really simple thing to think about, but a lot of times we reach out, even if it's a fairly senior person, but someone that is not really the ultimate person that's going to sign off on whatever it is. And that could be someone of a VP level as well. But Ian said that and I was like, oh, wow. You know, a lot of the time we let ourselves get shut down from people that say no, who aren't the people that would actually say yes to us. And before we get to that, thanks for checking out Blissful Prospecting. My name's Jason Bay. Just so you know if you're in the right place or not, I am on a mission to help reps and sales teams turn complete strangers into paying customers. So we talk about outbound, you know, cold outreach on this podcast, and we talk about closing deals too. So we talk a lot about discovery, demos, that sort of thing. And today's episode is an audio excerpt. It's part three of a three-part series I did with these guys called Earning Seven Figures. Jamal, Brandon, and Ian have all earned seven figures in a single year. And today, this episode is going to focus primarily on the sales motion. So we reverse engineer three deals that these guys have closed, ranging from $6 million to $50 million. $50 million. Pretty crazy. So I learned a lot from this. I could have spent an hour with each each of these guys, excuse me, unpacking their frameworks and these deals. But um, yeah, this is an action-packed one. So subscribe on Spotify or Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts so that you can get notified when the next episodes come out. I appreciate you tuning in and let's get to the episode. We got a lot to cover. Let's get the party started. So good to see everyone here. Um, so this is the last of a three-part series that we've been doing. And uh, I'm really excited to dig in here. What we've covered so far is a couple things. So we've talked about crossing the chasm. So the first session, you know, a couple of weeks ago was all about, you know, what was it like for these three to go from six to seven figures? A lot of that was the, the mentality, the mindset. I know one of the things that you guys all have in common too as coaches and mentors and stuff were a really big part of that journey. Last week, we talked more about outbound. So breaking through, getting the meeting. And today we're going to focus on running the sales motion. So each of these three are going to sort of unpack and reverse engineer a deal that they've closed. And I'm, I'm super excited for that. But uh, Jamal, just to give him a quick intro, it's been a career enterprise seller for over 20 years. In 2012, he closed his first big deal with Oracle, 50 million bucks. Um, and he runs a business now called Mega Deal Secrets. Jamal, what are you going to be sharing with us today? Uh, the theme of my deal is all about how to turn around an extremely upset customer ready to leave and basically do a business transformation to keep them. Yeah. Upset customers. That's a good one. All right. And we got Brandon. Brandon sold over $50 million in SaaS sales. He's generated $27.3 million in ARR with a 78% closing ratio, which is just crazy to me. (laughs) He runs a business called Be Focused, Live Great, where he works with reps to help them elevate um, the career of sales. Brandon, what are you going to be talking through us about today? I'm going to be deconstructing the power of the unsolicited bid to get in connected with the C-suite. Unsolicited bids. Dude, killer. All right. And then last but not least, Ian spent close to nine years at Salesforce where he was a number one rep and hit almost 400% of quota two years in a row. And 
He has a business now where he helps AEs achieve extraordinary results by mastering the mindsets, habits, and skills needed to perform at the highest level in sales. Ian, good to have you again. What are you going to be walking us through today? I'm going to walk through the power of a change agent and specifically how they can bring in all the other key stakeholders that are needed for multi-threading in a large, complex deal. Very cool. All right. Let me stop sharing here. Let's get to it. So Brandon, we're going to start with you. So give us a little bit of a rundown on the deal. You know, maybe 60 seconds, 90 seconds. Uh, give us a little bit more intel on the account. Who? I guess you're not allowed to share who it was, but size of deal, all yeah. that kind of good stuff before we dig in. Yeah, it was a top five global cable company. Uh, and the, the deal came about... Um, because the EVP, an executive on their side who's in charge of customer experience, um, actually attended one of our events uh, three years prior. I had built a name for myself in the organization. Uh, this is when I was actively selling conversational AI at LivePerson. And our EVP of sales uh, connected me with their EVP when he reached out stating, hey, we are launching a brand new brand. Uh, it was They were a cable company who wanted to get into the telecom space. So they were developing their own affordable mobile brands, um, similar to, say, a Mint Mobile, a very affordable telco. And so um, that started at the end of 2019, and we closed after submitting this half a billion dollar unsolicited bid, um, we closed a $6.6 million deal in that summer of 2020. Uh, so uh, happy to unpack that uh, here in a little bit. Dude, half a million dollar, half a billion dollar, excuse me, with a B proposals, <laughs> pretty, pretty crazy. So if, uh, if I'm looking at my notes correctly here, it took about eight and a half months to close. And a big deal, a big part of this you mentioned was the power of unsolicited bids. Can you talk about what an unsolicited bid is and sort of how you use that to gain access to who you needed to in the, in the company? Sure. It's us as the provider providing information and insights, providing a proposal that that company did not ask for. Um, we identified a really big problem that they were unaware of, uh, which was how to save tons of money, um, $90 million over three years by transferring their labor, transferring their customer experience from voice calls into conversational messaging and using the power of AI and automation. And we had a blueprint successfully helping many other cable companies, many other telecom companies. But once we had the power of their actual data, we could unpack that and deliver those insights. Interesting. So the kind of concept here is that almost this unsolicited bid is almost an unexpected kind of gift, I guess, that uh, you were bringing in a lot of these insights. You never really talked to them about this, but it sounds like you did a lot of discovery with yeah. everyone. Kind of, yeah. yeah. So we had to earn their trust and we had to get inside their four walls. So it was a two-part motion. So to sort of unpack where I was as a seller in the organization, I was a new logo hunter, but I had some, some rain 
that I didn't have to hand over immediately uh, a, a deal or a new logo to a client partner who could then go and expand that close eight figure, nine figure deal on top of the, the initial landing. Um, I was able to expand it a bit because we first closed the mobile deal, this brand new mobile brand that they were building from the scratch up. Um, I was able to close that with the agreement that, hey, this is going to get us into the larger parent company. Um, and then once I landed that, that's when I would hand it over to the client partner team. So that was step number one. Step number two was bringing in folks inside my organization who could truly bring about transformational change. So I didn't want to just land that initial deal and potentially put myself in a competitive situation where I was just going to be competing on features and price against their incumbent provider at the parent company. Um, because there were rumors that they were going to be putting out an RFP around conversational solutions. Um, and for those who are uh, not familiar with that, that means things like chatbots. It means chat or messaging uh, types of services that they could offer their customers. So step one, once we landed this initial mobile deal, um, we had to be successful at it. Um, of which we had a very good blueprint that we know was going to drive the impact that they needed. The outcome that that brand was looking for was to keep costs low for their customers so that they could announce to Wall Street and their potential customers, hey, we can give you mobile service for 10 bucks a month. And to be able to do that, they needed to reduce their costs. They couldn't outsource their customer service to these expensive uh, business processing operators or BPOs. Uh, so when you call customer service, that's usually an outsourced service. What we were able to say is, hey, don't go live with even a 1-800 number. Don't even allow your customers to call. And in fact, that's actually going to deliver a better service anyways, because nobody wants to call, have an automated tree to have to navigate through, be on hold. They want to be able to message your brand and then go about their business. So that was step number one. We did that very successfully for the mobile brand. We made those folks heroes. That got the attention of a higher subset of, of executives inside the parent brand. Then uh, we were able to collect their data, not a hypothesis. We actually, we actually collected real data. We understood what their costs were. We started to understand that they were outsourcing to eight different BPOs across the globe, spending about $200 million a year just on labor. So we were able to take that data, synthesize that with what we know we could achieve very conservatively and put forth a, a proposal that ended up being a half a billion dollars over that three years, but it would save them $90 million in total. So they could write that off as basically uh, you know, a, a reduced expense, an operating expense. And we were able to contract on that. We were willing to contract on that because we were willing to take that on as a managed service. 
And so that's why I needed to pull in some folks who had those chops. And by putting forth that unsolicited bid, that number immediately got the attention of their COO and CEO. And that helped us to bypass the RFP that did get put out. We completely (laughs) circumvented that and went straight to having these conversations with the C-suite. And we landed uh, with at least one initial deal for $6.6 million, where we took one use case to champion challenge this concept of of challenging one of one BPO with the the goal of getting proven results and then scaling from there. There's still yeah. a current client of live person, one of the biggest. Okay. So I think one thing that we could unpack, and I see a few people asking questions. Uh, I forgot to mention that you guys, you get questions as these people are coming up. I want to get to as many of them as possible. So keep them coming. I want to kind of open this up for the group here, because this unsolicited bid thing is really interesting. That seems like it was a really key part of you landing this deal. Uh, Faraz asks, how do you make sure an unsolicited bid gets the right traction if they're not expecting it or even aware of it? An unsolicited bid would have to be targeted to the C-suite, correct? So I'll kind of open this up for everyone. When you think of these unsolicited bids and how to get traction, how to get the data that you need for this, where do we start? How do you guys think of that? So in this particular situation, I'd love to hear from Jamal and Ian on this. Um, That step one was critical. We would not have gotten that actual data had we not started small. So we, the, the, the playbook was this. We showed them a large vision, even when we were just talking about the mobile company. We had a distinct point of view that we came in on because we were a category of one when it came to transforming cable companies and customer experience using conversational AI. We had that playbook because there weren't many companies doing that. So that gave us the confidence to come in, start with a big vision, but starting with a big vision and trying to execute on a big vision is very hard. Executives who are very busy, they need prescriptive next steps. So we had a big vision, but we started small. That starting small allowed us to get in the door and execute an MSA very quickly. With an MSA now, we were inside their four walls. And when once we were inside their four walls, we could collect actual data, not a hypothesis on data, this banging our head against the wall. Hey, please share this data with us what does a brand do in that situation? No, thanks. We'll give you some data, but we want to save this for procurement so they can beat you down on price. We collected real data because we were heroes and we we moved fast. So we were patient to say, okay, we'll land a $150,000 deal right now, but we know that this could give us a, a much bigger opportunity. If we were inside the four walls, we didn't have the MSA and and had access to real data, you know, we're, we're just sort of shooting blindly. Jamal, how do you sort of think of this and what's your experience been with this type of approach? Never use the word never or always, but I'll use always. There always seems to be um, some kind of proving event before a big deal. So what Brandon is talking about is kind of a a two-step mega deal. And the first one was the small deal. 
that did two things. It got an MSA done. That's massive. And it opened the door to a real assessment, a, a proving event, a proof of concept, a proof of value with real data. In, in mine, it was an existing customer. And we were selling them the software and we were selling them the people who were using the software for them. So we had all the data and we had to crunch it and show them the arguments that said, we need to do it completely differently if you're not happy with it now. So um, I, I think that's my takeaway from, from listening to Brandon is that there's always some kind of proving event. And that's why you want to try to get that. If, if you don't do it, you're going to get a small deal first. Brandon couldn't do anything uh, other other than a small deal in that scenario. So he did, but he kept the account and he got his mega deal and it was a two-step mega deal. It wasn't a land and expand and then you forget it and go on to the next account. It was a conscious strategy to do both. Got it. Ian, looks like he had something to add. I think these guys are both, both saying the same thing. You, you need to have somebody in the organization who trusts you, who's willing to share their data. And typically that happens when they're already familiar with you, either because they're using your product or service in some capacity or because they've used it in the past. It's hard to get that without some type of relationship or connection within the four walls because certainly procurement's not going to share it. IT is not going to have it. So you need someone in the business to share that information. And typically large deals, I'm just thinking about any large deal I've done north of seven figures, all of them have required some type of business case. And every one of those business cases was based on them coming to the table with their data, their specific um, time savings, their salaries. And, and fundamentally, CFOs aren't going to prove large deals without some type of ROI and business case that is not you telling them what it's going to be, but their team working with you to co-create those numbers conservatively. So those are kind of the, the what I'm hearing and definitely echoes the deals that I've worked that were large as well. Got it. So big takeaway here, it sounds like is, you know, not being afraid to sell, come in with a really, really big vision, knowing that you're probably not going to get everything that you wanted. And it's okay to get started with something and don't just think of this as a land or a, a, sorry, like a one and done, you know, kind of deal, but I can land, expand, use the data from that first agreement, from that first deal to really kind of sell the bigger vision. But I think a key part, it sounds like is coming in with the bigger vision to begin with. Yeah. Um, I'm a big fan of, you know, thinking of yourself as this category of one, there's less competition there. You know, if you can niche down into being a specialist at that moment, we were the specialist in the cable industry, utilizing conversational AI with very specific outcomes, how to disrupt these eight different outsourcers that you've been relying on for decades. That's costing you $200 million a year. Because all they're telling you is the best way to solve the problem is to throw more labor at it. We need better talent. We need better, um, uh, you know, trained people in the Philippines and India and Mexico, where we were giving them a whole new solution. No, bring that talent actually onshore with native language English speakers, 
and with really good automation and a great platform that can connect into all your backend systems, we can actually not just reduce costs, but deliver a better customer experience. We are the category of one experts who know how to do this. If you don't jump on now, you're going to miss out. You EVP, you're going to miss out on your bonus this year. And you COO and COO, you're going to mm-hmm. fall back to your competition. That's what, a powerful what, statement. What Brandon's sharing, I think, is important to call out. It's 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 in the challenger motion every every word through and through of both the challenger sale and the challenger customer, because he's saying what you're being told and what you're doing is all wrong. That's bold. He's saying the best service is no service or an effortless experience where they don't have to call. And, and anyone who sells into the call center or customer experience will know that, that BPOs and labor and throwing bodies and money at it is something that people have done traditionally, especially in, in telco and cable for dozens of years. So to go in with a point of view that's completely different and, and saying you got it all wrong, I think is, is what we want to do with these point of views, because that's what establishes you as a trusted advisor versus letting them guide the sale and tell you what they want. And, and it takes courage and and you have to believe in your vision strongly to be able to take that message to an executive audience. Love it. Brandon, good stuff. We got to, we got to move to the Ian here next. We'll unpack his and we'll just kind of do the same thing here. Um, God, I wish we had an an hour to unpack each of these (laughs) with you, but um, so Ian, walk us through your deal and sort of the big, you know, kind of takeaway that we can you know, spend some time on here. Yeah, I think um, my deal started with an RFP and it was led by procurement and IT. And the RFP, it was a global real estate company. The deal was about $12 million. And it started with a, a deal that was more transactional run rate type of deal where they came to RFP, it was going to be about $200,000. And um, we came back and of course we we did the whole RFP thing and um, I had the gut feeling we were losing, right? And, and the, the RFP, I was a brand new account that I had inherited and in, in our fiscal started in uh, February uh, of, of 2017. And this RFP came out maybe in March. I just gotten the deal. So I wasn't going to say no. I didn't even know anything about the company yet. So um, I, I responded. And when I saw the RFP, I had a really, really strong intuition that they were going about it the wrong way. Um, in, in, in its simplest, um, quickest format, they were asking for a database to manage real estate awards. So if you think about Keller Williams or Remax or Berkshire Hathaway or any of these large real estate companies, um, their agents are 1099 contractors. And it's a sales organization, but the agents can move around a lot, quite a bit. And, and their entire goal is they, they, they're motivated a lot by recognition, stack rankings, where they stand. So this was going to be the platform that managed how they were selling and um, basically the database of the awards they can use for their trips, for their club, for all their incentives. It's a very important database, but all they were looking at was this is a database. We're just going to store the data here. What we said is you're looking at this all wrong. Rather than just storing it and replacing a database with another database, which is what the RFP was asking for, we should use this as a way to engage the agents, to give them visibility of how close they are to trips, to show them how they stacked up in the leaderboards, not to report the news, but to create the news. 
Okay. So I took that to the IT contact and procurement contact that I was working with. And what do you think they did? Any guesses when I told them that they're looking at this all wrong? They probably shot it down. That's my guess. <laughs> yeah. said, like, you want to spend more money, dude? You stay in your yeah. lane. You're too expensive. So I came in with this like fancy proposal of all the collaboration, notifications, visibility, mobile app, all the cool dashboards, all these great things we can do to drive sales. And they said, this is garbage. Just give us the database. And I said, I, I, I'm not sure that I want to work with these guys. They're, they have it all wrong. So I decided to go outside of procurement. And I took this message to the COO directly. I said, you're making a mistake with this. I'm a new account executive. The way your team is looking about this is, is not how they should be. And the C- and I requested a meeting with, with the COO. Okay. And I gave him my point of view. I said, here's how you should and could be looking about this. And he said, I'll meet with you. So we sat down, the COO and his VP of um, solutions strategy uh, came into the meeting and they said, Ian, Awards is just one of our, our, our problems. We got a much bigger problem in, in our organization and we need your help. And um, he didn't say we need your help. He said, we, we have a much bigger uh, problem right now. And our problem is awards is one of 60 projects that we have on the table in IT. And of those 60, only three have been delivered on time and under budget. Our organization is building everything ourselves, and we can't keep up with our competitors. Compass is disrupting the industry. Zillow's now getting directly into our space, Redfin. And if we don't innovate faster and we don't deliver faster, we are not going to be in business. Agents are leaving. We can't deliver value fast enough, and we we have a much bigger problem. Um, what would you suggest? We don't want to go down this rabbit hole with just awards. We need to um, have a innovative culture and a platform that enables us to build much faster, not just this app, but multiple apps. And, and so what do you suggest? And, and so I talked to him about uh, a group within, within Salesforce that we called the Ignite Team. And the Ignite Team is a group of design thinkers that fundamentally helps companies transform their organization's to innovate faster and to deliver more value to their customers and their customers' customers. And I said, if you really want to solve this problem, it's bigger than this one application. I say we freeze everything and we take a step back and we look at how we can build a culture and and a um, company of innovation. And so he said, that's a great idea. And and, and so what what I ended up doing was, and this is where the the catalyst for the deal happened, um, the COO was new to the organization and new to that role. And he said, Ian, I can't do this alone. I got to get my team on board. I got to get my company on board. I'd love to introduce the concept of why we need to change and shift to a culture of innovation to our company um, in our next town hall meeting. Um, Would you guys help me prepare for this town hall? And so my next call was to my internal team, the Ignite group. And there was a colleague of mine, his name was Noah Flower. And I said, Chris, well, I guess I can use the name. I'm not, I'm not, I'm not going to say the name of the company because we're talking about deal sizes, but um, the, the context, the COO, his name was Chris. And I said, Chris, I think you should talk to Noah. And Noah is a strategist. He can help you prepare for, the, for this town hall. So Chris and Noah spent multiple meetings kind of coming up with the hypothesis, the story of why this real estate organization needed to change to keep up with with Zillow and Compass and the changing landscape that was being rapidly disrupted. 
And that was where we kind of got the deal, frankly, is um, we became a trusted advisor to them before we ever talked about Salesforce, our services, our products. We helped him create a narrative of why they needed to change, which frankly is 60% of the sales motion is getting all the people within the company to agree they have a problem and agree on a direction of what they wanted to do. So that was that was about a month. And then once we um, once he did the town hall, which was which was very successful, then he said, "Okay, what do you suggest that that we do next?" And then we we went through this whole design thinking um, exercise where we were traveling around the country, meeting with real estate agents, understanding you know what it was like at the ground level. Um, and we spent about two or three months really collecting all the data we needed to help them um, not only uh, create a, a new a new way of working, but understand in 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 detail what wasn't working for them right now. And then we came back and we did a massive design thinking workshop where the COO brought in his CEO, his CIO, his CFO, his controller. There was about twenty executives. They had to be VP and above. And I have a picture of this because. The importance and why I want to share this is really the value of what a change agent at the executive level can do for a large deal. So this is the size of just the group that went into the design thinking workshop. This is what we were doing. We were having everyone in a room for two days to figure out what they wanted their future to look like using design thinking methodology. And again, by the time we got to the proposal stage and the business case stage, they were already decided that they were going to work with us. So taking them through this discovery process, taking, guiding them through the sales cycle was the way that we won the deal. And and the signing only took a couple of days. It was a very fast. um, Once we got that sponsorship, the whole deal closed in, in, in under six months. Dude. Go ahead, Jamal. <laughs> in, in uh, I've been I've been burning for for this question from the beginning. To to me, uh, one of the most exciting pieces is just getting that meeting with who was it the COO going around procurement. So, how did you do that? How did you navigate to the COO uh, uh, and not? I mean, maybe you did, or how did you manage whatever repercussions with procurement and others uh, landed that, and then. In that meeting, what was was he was he really just so open kimono and hey, we need your help, or was he kind of closed? Or so that's two questions, right? How did you get what's the color behind getting that meeting? Mm-hmm. And then what are the details, fly on the wall details of what that meeting was like? So the first um my philosophy, and I I err on the side of being more aggressive and maybe pe- pissing people off than probably most people, just because. I believe you only live once. And if you want to do something, you just have to do it. So I'm, I'm probably a little bit more um, rough around the edges than, than, than some people who maneuver a little more delicately. Um, so, so the way I got the meeting was um, first and foremost, my philosophy is never take a no from someone who can't say yes. So procurement and IT was saying no, but they couldn't say yes to my proposal. Yeah. So that was like, okay, well, I'm talking to the wrong people. So I, I'm a big believer like you, Jamal, in going high fast. So once I saw we were kind of losing and your procurement was, was kind of pushing us down, you know, I saw that the COO was new to the position and I reached out directly and I gave him a long email and I, you know, I gave him the details. I said, here's what I'm hoping we can do with the project. Here's what your procurement's telling me. I need your coaching. I need your guidance on the best way to navigate this. Cause I really think 
you know, the company is making a mistake by not looking at this closer. And then I asked him for a meeting. So it was very direct. It was via email and he, he took the meeting, but it was with the context of sharing my point of view. Here's what we're saying. Here's what your procurement saying. Here's why I think it's a mistake. I'd like to get your coaching and guidance on the best way to navigate. That's key. So you, you ask them to give you guidance. It's humble. It's, it's, a, I always, I almost always ask for coaching and guidance versus like, you need to do something about this, you know? So that, that's kind of the, the, the tone of, of the email, if, if, if you can imagine. And then once I got the meeting, we, I shared we, a point of view. Real quick, Ian, I want to, sure. oh dude, there's just so much here. You ask for coaching and guidance. Yeah. That's a way that you're able to challenge super, super hard, but in a way that doesn't like really offend. Yes. The person. Yeah. Because you want people, you want to appeal to their egos. You want to bring them involved and you want to be humble. And it's saying, I need your help. I need your help is different than you're making a mistake. So that's, I that's think cool. really important, really important is like, I want, like, where would you go if you were me? What, what do you suggest? You know, I know you're new to this role. So, you know, he absolutely, well, it turns out when I got the meeting, he wasn't happy with their procurement and IT, right? Very much because they were the ones that were 60 projects, you know, behind um, schedule and, and, and over budget, right? So he was there to make changes. He was a change agent. He was very vocal and verbal when I got the meeting around what wasn't working. So, you know, very few customers are as direct and open. It turns out, Jamal, this guy came from Oracle and he was one of their enterprise sales people before he started his own company, became, you know, president, CEO. So he, you know, he's a sales guy through and through. So he, he when you're selling to salespeople, you know, they, they tend to be very direct and open. Um, and so, so that you, was you, pretty- did, you didn't know he was a change agent. You, 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 you masterfully got the meeting, but in that meeting, he kind of revealed himself yes. as a change said, agent. And then it was off said, to the races. Yeah. He said, my MO, my MO is I need to change all of this Ian. this is ridiculous. We have 25% of our company's IT staff and they're not delivering anything. We need to start outsourcing. We need a platform. We need to deliver value. This ain't going to work. I'm here to make changes. He was very, I mean, type A, um, the buck stops here kind of leader. And then, but he was humble and he knew that he wasn't going to do it alone. So his first steps was doing this town hall. And then, you know, he was selling internally. He was the quintessential mobilizer where he was selling internally, but he also brought us in to meet with the CIO, the CFO. So our process with design thinking, this was the cool thing, is once we said, this is how we work, we need one-on-one interviews with all the stakeholders so we can understand what they care about, what their challenges are, what their goals look like. And that's not going to include you, Chris. Uh, he was like, great. I want you to talk to them. I want them to be on board. So in those interviews, the design thinking team w- literally got meeting with the CEO, CFO. And now everyone that's on the executive committee is telling us exactly what's not working. And we had so much by the time we got to the proposal phase to go off of, um, you know, it was it was already a done deal. So I think that was a big part of it is that we weren't just single threaded through him. He was humble and smart enough to bring in his team and also let us meet with his team one-on-one, but he still controlled kind of the, the overall um, engagement and was our main point of contact. So that was like when I realized design thinking was such a powerful way of working because now he was getting us meetings with the entire C-suite where I never would have gotten those on my own, but through that design thinking engagement process, we that was just part of the process. We have to meet with the stakeholders one-on-one before we do the workshops. So that was pretty cool. 
I'm really glad you bring that up, Ian. I think this is a, an opportunity that's missed by a lot of sellers because in enterprise strategic selling, it's not a sales challenge that we face. It's a buying challenge that we're trying to solve for. And if we can take our sales hat off and put our design thinking caps on, that's the catalyst that you beautifully unpacked in this really large deal. Um, can you maybe high level give some folks listening in who may be struggling with, hey, I need to pitch, I need to present, I need to be this superhuman in front of customers and know it all. And then that's what lands the deal versus taking more of that design thinking approach. Like what's your advice to sellers out there listening? My, my biggest piece of advice is be the quarterback. Find the experts. If you work for a large company like an Oracle or a live person or Salesforce, oftentimes you have teams or resources that are dedicated to helping the customer come up with a strategic vision and roadmap and the right architecture. And, and when I really started selling, you know, it, it uh, at a much greater level when I when I took a step back and realized that this lone wolf approach that I was doing, this grinding transactional approach, wasn't working. And I started leveraging this Ignite team of design thinkers. And I that was like what I was trying to sell. I was trying to sell them to agree to an Ignite, to an, agree to a design thinking engagement, because I knew at the end of that, we would have so much information and so many connections that getting a deal would be would be much easier. So my advice is simple, sell as a team and bring in people smarter than you and let them do their job and stay out of the way. And you'll be amazed at how your results skyrocket. I have to ask you guys all too, RFPs, is that the go-to motion? Hey, I'm not going to be compliant necessarily with the RFP process. I'm going to see if I can take this above and start above the RFP. Is that how you guys all approach RFPs? Um, I've I've been able to leverage RFPs in a very strategic way. So I welcome them. I was able to successfully use an RFP as a reason to deliver a distinct point of view. Like Ian mentioned earlier, um, you know, don't accept no from people who can't say yes. You know, the, the effort of an RFP is to commoditize everything. And let's face it, brands don't always know what they don't know. So it's our job as design thinkers to figure out, hey, how can I put myself in this prospect's customer's shoes, truly their customer's shoes and come up with some insights that will bring value. So you can use, I've used strategically coming in at 10X the price and being told that the cost, and then using that as a lever to say, well, here's the reason why. You know, we're responding to the RFP, but I don't philosophically believe in some of the things that you're asking for. Here's a different perspective on it. And that usually opens up the, the aperture and the conversation wider. Wow. Jamal? Um, one of the greatest lessons that I learned, it was kind of a realization. Um, and it came while I was at big old Oracle. And, you know, the bigger the company, the more the rules or guidelines or policies there are, just layers and layers and layers. And um, I, re I remember at some point, it was between watching other reps do it enough. And then I started to do it. I realized that what was happening was um, we were learning how to see those as rules and guidelines and not as law. 
And a great rep understands how to make non-standard stuff happen. <laughs> so whether it's fooling around with the RFP to get beyond it or try to influence, you know, there are stories of people going above, like, like what Ian did. There are stories like I've, I've experienced the, um, uh, having a mole in the account. And she was like, I'm going to talk to you guys, even though the RFP is on, because I want to tell you all everything that's going on. And so we were like, okay, but uh, it's risky, but yes, let's do it. And so we got all the, the, the juice from this one person who was on the decision-making committee and telling us what was wrong with the RFP and what we should do and shouldn't do, et cetera. And then, um, you know, uh, I, I've seen other reps simply push back and say, you know, similar to what Ian was talking about, you're doing it wrong. And if you're going to do it, you should do it like this, et cetera. Um, and all of this came into a visual image of mine. It's kind of like, you know, those uh, corn mazes, you know, in, in, at the end of the summer, you can go through a corn maze. It's really tall. It's taller than you. And you can't see around it. And you're just kind of trying to make your way through. And it's a lot of fun. A great rep knows how to levitate above the corn maze of all the policies within a company and look up and say, aha, the exit's over there. And just kind of float above it all to get there faster. And that's what it's like getting around the things that you're told or the ways that you're told to do it, either internally with your, internally with your company or with the customer's policies and how they do it. And you can, you can be a bull in a china shop. You can do it with super stealth and, and, and sensitivity. Do it in a way that fits you and your personality, but um, absolutely learn how to you know, rise above the corn maze and, and get to the end fast. Oh man, this is good stuff. You guys, uh, let's, let's keep this rolling. Ian, that was awesome, man. <laughs> um, all right. So we got Brendan, Ian, Jamal, last but not least, walk us through kind of your deal, the big learning lesson, and let's, uh, let's pick your brain on it. Yeah. So, so the short story was, it was an existing customer and they were doing about, it, it was a, a global pharmaceutical company. And they were a current customer, but they were only a customer because um, Oracle had just acquired uh, number one in a certain uh, uh, a software that did a certain business function within R&D. And as you know, oftentimes with uh, acquisitions, lots of the good people from the acquired company leave to go do something else like a startup. And, and there's a lot of turnover. So we were walking into a situation where this acquisition had just taken place. And it was right about renewal time. And the customer was so dissatisfied because our deal was software and services. And a lot of the people were either leaving or you know, the KPIs, the, the, the SLAs weren't being met, et cetera. So they were thinking of walking. And I had just been brought back into the account after it had been given to somebody else. And I, and, and, uh, I remember I was, and, and all this, uh, some of the folks who are on the, 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 this call have read my book. This, the book is the long version of this whole story. Uh, but uh, I was at a different pharmaceutical company and I got the call from my VP and he's like, do you want this account? I'm like, well, of course I do. He says, well, good, because you need it now because we're starting the renewal process. So long story short, over a nine month period, uh, we we started this journey with the customer that started with one very important meeting where I was sitting at the conference table. To my right was the head of sales. To the, my left was the head of professional services. And across 
from us was the VP who was the sponsor of the whole business unit. And we had started the conversation talking about what we could do to make things better. And it was mostly about, you know, getting different or, you know, configuring the services team different or how to handle bugs differently. And the customer said, guys, 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 this is not about discounts here and there, moving a team around here or there. This is about stewarding the most important IP of this company. It was a long pause. We just kind of looked at each other and we, and we said, okay, all right, we get it. And the conversation completely changed and we took a different direction. And what ensued was, was nine months of raising above the, the corn maze and, and flying all the heck over the place because we, we redid everything. We did redid the operational model. We completely did a non-standard commercial model. We, we basically wrote our own T's and C's instead of you know, using all the standard stuff that's in Oracle's 100-page document. And those are highlights, right? I could go deep in every single one of them. Uh, but the, the biggest kind of asset that we had, you know, this is all about team selling, was my VP of sales happened to be almost like a, like a mathematical savant. And um, he would have us, the whole team, go scour, collect and scour all the data from our uh, previous years of working with this customer and bring it back and set it up in a certain way. And he would just kind of look at it and watch his stuff. And he would come up, his favorite thing to say was, you can, you can argue anything that you can support with proof. And with numbers, you can prove all kinds of things. So it was his favorite selling tool was numbers. And so he would come up with argument after argument that layered on top of each other, um, a transformation of each component of the deal. To the point why by at the end of the nine month period and this very, you know, uh, chaotic and exciting experience sales cycle, we got down to the very last day before the end of Oracle's, it was the, it was the final day of Oracle's fiscal year. And we wound up signing a $53 million deal. So it went from 10 million to 53 million with a really pissed off customer in nine months. And that's pretty much it. What I love about, you know, what you unpack in much greater detail and make a deal secrets, Jamal. And I think what we're hearing, everybody's hearing is a common theme is being in a position of humility to be able to put people in a position to thrive, to be in a position to be a true subject matter expert. And you had multiple stakeholders in this concept of team selling that you talk about Jamal in the book and, and, and just now unpacking that deal is it's so important to bring folks who can fill in the gaps where maybe you don't have that expertise and they can be put in on a pedestal where they can shine, where, where they truly do have that capability. So can you talk a little bit about how you rally those folks inside your organization, when to go to them and, and like how to leverage them to good effect? I mean, it's, it's a great question. It's, it's not just team selling. It's almost like entire New York City area selling, you know, sometimes. <laughs> There's so many people get involved. And it was in that selling experience where I learned that to do these, the complex selling, we need to, 
let go of our preconceived ideas about what being a salesperson is all about and become something else. And what we become is something between a CEO and a project manager or a program manager. Because we used to be, you know, it used to be just me and the pre-sales guy would go do a 50K deal. But with these huge things, it's like, okay. So the services team has all this cascading need of people to talk about the different elements because the deal is so complex. What we do for them has so many facets to it. One person isn't going to be able to address all the issues. So, I mean, without going too much detail, what I had to learn how to do was basically run, run a complex process. And so what I did is I had owners of different components. I assigned ownership, even if they weren't really ready, I kind of helped them kind of groom them with their confidence. And I said, I'm here for you, but I don't know that part you do. So I'll help you shine, but you got to do, you got to own this bit. And I had assigned people on each one of their own kind of mini team. And then I'd say, go do what you need to do with the customer and go do what you need to do with our own internal team and pull me in whenever you need. And everybody will get together on Wednesday afternoon. We'll have an all, we'll have an internal all hands call every Wednesday afternoon just to see what the heck everybody's doing and how I can support. So all of a sudden I wasn't doing, I wasn't a doer anymore. I was just a facilitator and a supporter and that was a really new experience. And, and I hope everybody on this call gets to make that shift because it's, it's, it's an amazing thing. It's scary. We're not trained to do it, but it's so important to learn if we're ever going to get over this hump going from run rate to, to selling above the clouds, as I say. I, I think Jamal is hitting on an important point. And in, in you almost have to be like the RVP of your account or your territory. And I put in the chat, there, there's a big internal team you're managing. And each person has a specific role. And you know, we're all kind of marching in the same direction to close a deal. But you have your, your solutions engineer, of course, in their people that they're working with, they're quarterbacking all the products working together to, to prove out how this this large transformational deal works. There's there's architecture. There's your business value services, the people doing the business case. There's sales leadership above you that you're trying to align with, with their leaders. There is operations and pricing and legal and everyone in between. I mean, I don't know if it was just kind of a big company thing or if smaller company, because I only worked at large companies, but if you're working at a, a semi-decent company where they do seven and eight figure deals regularly, you're going to have a massive team and the skills that are required to run and orchestrate this type of deal is, is very, it's very much leadership, quarterbacking, organization, planning, project management, and time management skills, which don't always come naturally to the hardworking, grinding salesperson. So it's almost like an entirely different type of person you need to become to be able to run and close these deals. And I had to make that transition myself. And I only did it after missing quota three years in a row because I realized what I was doing wasn't working in the enterprise space at Salesforce. So it's a really important point. It's a different skill set. Hardworking, grinding, outworking everyone does not work in the enterprise, period. I have a question that I'd like to pull the, the audience on because I'm hearing something more and more. I don't want to, I don't want to influence the question too much. Yes or no. You can do more, but yes or no. 
do you feel the company that you work for gives you sufficient, not massive amounts like the big companies have, but sufficient people and resources to be able to do complex deals? Not even mega deals, but just larger and complex deals. Big mix. So, Okay, so it's a mix. What I, the reason why I'm asking is because we want to keep this ex, as, a, as applicable as possible. And even though more Ian and I, because Brandon's company was sizable, but you know nothing like Salesforce and, and Oracle. I, what I don't want to have happen is to everybody to walk away and say, well, if I'm not at a Salesforce or Oracle, I can't do these big deals. Because that's, that's not true. You just do it at the scale that your team can support. You can still go beyond what you're normal, what you're used to. Go, you know, all of us are used to grabbing the sales engineer, pre-sales engineer, and kind of riding off into the territory. That that's where we're comfortable. But go get uncomfortable by grabbing some other folks, regardless of how many there are. Go internally and find your A team. Ask and demand that you get the A team and show that look. I got a potentially big deal here. It is not totally qualified. It is not laid out in front of us, but I need your help to go get it there. And you rally the troops, but it doesn't have to be the massive hordes of support people that the larger companies give their reps. I think that's a really, really important point that people should embrace. Um, if you're going to really embrace one thing, it's it's that important thing is it doesn't matter honestly where you are. You have to go outside of the typical prescriptive nature. I talk. I've been talking a lot about this with uh, through mentoring and some of the advising sessions that I've been having. This is probably the biggest topic that comes up the most. Um, Jamal said it. I was at a thirteen hundred person company. Comes nowhere near Salesforce and Oracle with the type of infrastructure and and options you have at your disposal. I had to take it upon me to sort of go outside the typical zone of a typical run rate seller. Before that, I was at a 300-person late-stage startup, one of two people selling enterprise solutions. The way I won deals was to get everybody selling the cool factor of being in San Francisco. I would bring these restaurant executives inside uh, our office, and in a half a day, I got our CEO to speak with them. I got our customer success team to show them what it was going to be like to be a customer. I had our sales engineers give a really uh, prescriptive demo. So the way I liken it is instead of being a franchise operator, you know, when you come in and you're at a new company, you could be a franchise operator and just listen and abide by the rules, right? But that playbook was designed by somebody else. The better way to think about it is to think of yourself like a startup and you want to be a startup that changes the world. And when you get started first as a startup, right, it's going to be a little scrappy. It's going to be a little messy. But eventually, once you get experience and you get the, 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 the type of skills that you need, you start to become a well-oiled uh, operating machine a company that can operate with excellence consistently. So that takes coloring outside the lines a little bit back to our earlier 
you know, question like why, you know, certain subjects weren't right for us in school is sometimes you got to unlearn the things that you are taught in school or the school of sales and, and think, you know, more outside of, of, of the box. Um, that's what's going to take you from level A to level Z. I'd like to add to Jamal's point and, and Brandon's, what you're hearing from all of us is a common theme. If it's a small company, mid or large company, it's not important how big in the quarterbacking skills. You need those skills if you're quarterbacking a bigger team. But what's way more important as a takeaway is to really understand your customer and come in with a compelling and thoughtful and challenging point of view on how you can help them with their biggest challenges or hit their biggest goals. All three of these stories, all three of our examples required us coming in with a different point of view from what the customer was initially thinking they needed or asking us for. And that's kind of the enterprise CEO startup way of thinking that um, Jamal and Brandon are referring to. It's, it's coming in completely as if you were an employee of the company. And better yet, if you as if you were their CEO, what changes would you make if you worked for them? And when you can kind of position it as really, you know, in service of them and helping them with things, especially things they don't know, a problem they didn't even know they had, you are going to get the access to the right folks. You're going to get the respect. You're going to get the, the ears and the attention of executives that ultimately can drive some of these big deals. So really um, come in without, you know, necessarily listening and just doing whatever they tell you they want. Come in as you know, a blank slate. And here's what the right thing to do is to transform their business and know your product and service really well. Know other customer stories, like how you've helped other customers. So you can have that point of view that's rooted, not in fantasy, but in actual case studies and, and other customer success stories. Um, and that's, that's the key, right? Come in with that big vision. That's really going to make, make a splash for, 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 for your customers. I love that. You guys, this was awesome. God, I wish we had another like two hours. <laughs> You guys made my job really easy today too. I didn't have to ask many questions. Um, you guys, this is so great. I want to thank Jamal, Ian, and Brandon, you guys again for spending the time over the last three weeks doing this. Um, I learned a ton from you guys. A lot of the people participating learned a ton. And I want to thank everyone that was here today interacting. Um, this was super, super fun. But any just last you know, kind of places that uh, you want to let people know where to connect, we'll start with you, Ian. Where can people go to follow you, connect with you, all that good stuff? LinkedIn is the best place. Just hit me direct. I'll send you my newsletter, my YouTube. If you want hands-on coaching and support, um, my new platform is live taking customers. It's called untap your sales potential, untap your sales potential.com. Go there. All the information you need uh, is up there. If you want to work, you know, more hands-on than, than just the, the YouTube videos. Awesome. And Brandon. Yeah, definitely follow me on LinkedIn. I post every day, uh, deconstructing my approach from my successes and failures uh, and then our first product that we put out to the world is seven steps to seven figures. You can go get that at seven steps to seven figures.io. Awesome. And Jamal. Yeah, of course. Hit me up on LinkedIn as well and follow me there. Um, and there's a couple other resources. So on my LinkedIn page, you in the featured section, you can find access to my book, the Mega Deal Secrets, the 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 long version of the story I told today. And then there's a number of things that I do uh, working with individual contributors and teams, and all of them are at jamalreimer.com.
Awesome. I dropped your LinkedIn's into the chat for you guys. Thank you guys again. Have a good rest of your day. We'll see you soon. Later, everyone. Thanks all. Bye.